So the scripture this morning is Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. If you could please stand for the reading of God's word. It says, I, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, That is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life, the word of the Lord. Thank you, Dean. And when it comes time to pronounce those names, I'll just have you shout them out because I think I pronounce them differently than you do. So, <clears throat> By the way, I know I'm, I've been kind of facetious about the COVID being gone by the time of the Major League All-Star game. But in my heart, I'm hoping it's true. <laughs> you know, if, if money from the All-Star game can chase COVID away, I'm all for it. John Bevere in his book, The Bait of Satan, writes this. Anyone who has trapped animals knows that a trap needs one of two things to be successful. It must be hidden in the hope that an animal will stumble upon it, and it must be baited to lure the animal into the trap's deadly jaws. He goes on to say, Satan, the enemy of our souls, incorporates both of of these strategies as he lays out his most deceptive and deadly traps. They are both hidden and baited. Satan, along with his cohorts, is not as blatant as many believe. He is subtle and delights in deception. He is shrewd in his operations, cunning and crafty. One of his most deceptive and insidious kinds of bait is something every Christian has countered. Offense. Actually, offense is not deadly if it stays in the trap. But if we pick it up and consume it and feed on it in our hearts, then we have become offended. Offended people produce much fruit such as hurt, anger, outrage, jealousy, resentment, strife, bitterness, hatred, and envy. In the late 1800s, there were just two deacons in a small Baptist church in Mayfield County, Kentucky. One Sunday, one of the deacons put up a small wooden peg in the back back wall so the minister could hang his hat on it. When the other deacon discovered the peg... He was outraged that he had not been consulted. Well, you can understand that. Before long, the church took sides and eventually split. To this day, the story goes, you can find in Mayfield County, Kentucky, the Anti-Peg Baptist Church. Okay. Charles Colson, in, in his book, The Body, the world isn't looking at our tracks and rallies, and telecasts, and study manuals. It is looking at us and how we behave. When it fails to see the unity of Jesus' followers, 
the church, it fails to see the validation that Christ is indeed the Son of the living God. Aggressive secularists don't care whether we are Eastern Orthodox or Baptist or Charismatic. They can't distinguish between post and pre-millennialism, nor would they care if they could. They only want... They want only to discredit the church because its views are hostile to their own worldview. So when we are divided, quarreling among ourselves, we play right into their hands, diminishing our own already weakened influence. Have you ever been part of, or at least a bystander to a conflict within the church family? If you have, you know how painful it can be. Churches actually split, friends become estranged, and competing sides charge each other with being unchristian. Of course, it's always the other guys, you know. There are many reasons why churches go through times of turmoil. Some are justified. Sometimes the issues are important and involve the spiritual soundness or the theology of the church. But most of the time, however, the turmoil is over petty and insignificant issues. Many churches have split over issues such as as simple as pews versus chairs or the color of the carpet. And these church conflicts bring about deep scars in the body of Christ. And in the process, our reputation is stained in the community. The churches is. In John 13:35 Jesus taught his disciples that they were to be known by their love for one another. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his listeners that if one were at the altar and remembered something that someone had against them, they should leave their offering at the altar and go and be reconciled to their brother. Jesus knew that you can't truly worship when you are at odds with your brother or sister. In his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed that his followers might be one. It would appear that God wants his children to get along. And Paul was the one with the bird's eye view on this situation with, well, I'm going to call you Odie and Syntyche. Or whatever you called them. I do. I should have done this. I actually have a website that gives you the the appropriate pronunciations. I didn't even think to look, but of some of these biblical names. My bad. <clears throat> anyway, Paul has a bird's eye view, and and he starts by saying this: Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. This is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. He's being pretty. Uh, com- Complimentary there. Now, if you read the commentators, they say you were really not because in my Bible, um, verse one kind of, of four kind of goes with the previous passage. Then there's another little heading that says exhortations and goes on. But the commentators say we're not really sure if verse one goes with the previous passage or with what Paul's about to say. So I'm going to include it with what Paul's about to say today. All right. <clears throat> Um, actually, it doesn't really matter. But it, he makes it pretty clear about how he feels about the Philippian church and how much he loves them in, in, in that verse. 
And one reason I think he says that is he's kind of setting them up because he's about to bring a little bit of a rebuke here. People need to know they're loved first before they receive this kind of message. They need to be in the right frame of mind to hear. Any rebuke must come from love. You know, even when we talk about confronting a brother or sister, we do it in love, don't we? That's the biblical command. We do it in love. And so, he addresses this situation that's happening in this church body in Philippi. And so he's talking about a a disagreement that these ladies have with one another. And that's what I want to address today is I want to talk about the issue of disagreements in the church. And not because it's necessarily a need for us, but because it's stuff we need to understand. Because Satan tries to bring this kind of stuff into the church body. Anything he can can do to divide us and call... Listen, you can't move ahead and do the things that God wants us to accomplish for the kingdom if we're busy doing this with one another, right? Our focus is in the wrong place. So, good stuff to know. So that, you know, we're wise as serpents and harmless as as doves. Amen? That kind of thing. Disagreements are inevitable. They're going to happen. We're people. You know, we have different backgrounds, different personalities. We view the world a little differently than the you know, people sitting down the pew from us. These things happen in good churches. They do. Even in good churches, you find folks who have differences with each other. Such as in the case of the Church of Philippi. It was a good church. Paul begins by telling the people of Philippi that they are his joy and his crown. Literally a victor's crown. He literally views this church as his reward. Basically, his trophy of grace. You know, think about the other uh, letters Paul wrote to the early churches. And in all of them, he's dealing with at least one issue that's going on in the church. This is the issue in Philippi. This is it. The rest of the... Nothing else, really. No other issues mentioned in the book of Philippi. And this was just... Ha- this was one wasn't a thing that had infected the church apparently at this point, but I think the reason Paul addresses it is because he doesn't want it to infect the church. So, he's addressing a, a, a good church here. And he realizes that when he stands before the Lord to give an account of his life, these whom he has won to the Lord will be tangible symbols of the spiritual work that he has done. So, the church at Philippi was a good church. Paul, in his letter, expresses his gratitude to them. He is complimentary of them. They've been very supportive of him, just prayer-wise and financially. And we see that earlier in in the book of Philippians. And, And so, other than this problem between these two women, he doesn't address any other internal issues in this book. So, Euodia and Syntyche... These two ladies were both Christians. Paul says their names are in the book of life. All right? What? That stuff doesn't happen? Oh, well, it does. They were good, committed folks, godly folks, fellow workers, Paul says. They worked alongside Paul at some point. They were loved by Paul. But an issue has arisen. 
and they are quarreling with one another. We have no idea what that issue was. He doesn't make that clear to us. Larry Crabb wrote this, The difference between spiritual and unspiritual community is not whether conflicts exist, but is rather in our attitude toward it and our approach to handling it. When conflict is seen as an opportunity to draw more fully on spiritual resources, we have the markings of spiritual community. In other words, it is how we handle conflict, disagreement that determines the level of our spiritual maturity as a church body. And Jesus knew that Christians would have differences with one another. In Matthew 5.23, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and remember there that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. It's going to happen. And Paul wrote this this to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 1.10-11, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that... All of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some of Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Deal with it in the right way. And by the way, word of caution, just because it's recognized in the scripture that Christians will have disagreements with one another does not mean that they are inconsequential or have no potential for harm. In fact, the opposite is true. If not dealt with biblically, disagreements can become destructive in personal relationships and in the church body as a whole. And then disagreements have consequences. And I'm talking about the negative kind here. First, it it, it has the potential to damage the relationship between the two parties involved, as in Euodia and Syntyche here. And these women are, they're named. They're named by name. I mean, Paul wrote to the church and said, these two ladies. Euodia's name means fragrance. Syntyche's name literally means fortunate. Interestingly, and it's interesting that Paul, Paul just calls them out by name. You know, in other places where there are issues, he doesn't name people, but here he does. The Beacon Bible commentary says, says this, but the fact that he named them does not mean that Paul considers them opponents. In fact, that he names them at all would have expressed friendship in the ancient world since enemies were devalued by leaving them anonymous. Most of us wouldn't want to be called out like that. So these women have a problem that's alienating them from one another and has potential to be harmful to the fellowship as a whole. Second, Consequence, potentially, is it disrupts the unity of the church. It's likely, again, the commentators say that Euodia and Syntyche had leadership roles in the church. For them to be at odds with one another creates the potential for others to now begin to choose sides. I'm a Euodia supporter. Oh, no. I'm going with Syntyche on this one. 
The ripple effect of that could lead to division within the body. And if not healed, could split the church and nullify any godly impact that they might have in their community. There's a church in Louisiana whose roof is green on one side and red on the other. This was done because some of the church members adamantly wanted green and others adamantly wanted red. The, the, the disagreement was so intense that it threatened to split the church. Fortunately, a compromise was reached so that split would not take place. Unfortunately, the red and green roof is a reminder to the surrounding community of the disunity within the body of Christ. You know, it would be nice if the people involved in the ruckus were the only ones affected by it, but that's not how it works. Instead, if church conflicts persist, the entire body is impacted. And then third consequence, it displays a bad example to a lost world. Man, how, how has the church of Jesus Christ been damaged by this kind of thing? I mean, by splits that happen many times over stupid stuff and leadership who's done things that godly people should not do and the whole world finds out. So, although some disagreement or conflict is inevitable when human beings work together, unfortunately, all too often, these differences of opinion escalate into full-scale warfare. In a parable she entitles, A Brawling Bride, Karen Maines vividly describes a suspenseful moment in a wedding ceremony. She writes, Down front stands the groom in a spotless tuxedo, handsome, smiling, full of anticipation, shoes shined, ever here in place, anxiously awaiting the entrance of the bride. All the attendants are in place, looking joyful and attractive. The magical moment finally arrives as the pipe organ reaches full crescendo and the stately wedding march begins. Everyone rises and looks toward the door for their first glimpse of the bride. Suddenly, there's a horrified gasp. The wedding party is shocked. The groom stares in embarrassed disbelief. Instead of a lovely woman dressed in an elegant white, smiling, elegant white, smiling behind a lace veil, the bride is limping down the aisle. Her dress is soiled and torn. Her leg seems twisted. Ugly cuts and bruises cover her bare arms. Her nose is bleeding. One eye is purple and swollen and her hair is disheveled. Does not this handsome groom deserve better than this? Alas! His bride, the church, has been fighting again. The world has a field day watching the church fight and quarrel. Often for the silliest reasons. Just such a condition existed in the church. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to, go to law before the unrighteous? And not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. 
Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brothers go to law against brothers, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore, it is already an, an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why, why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Paul maintains that Christians should be able to resolve their conflicts without parading their dirty laundry before an unbelieving world. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that he would rather be wronged than to bring a stain on the Lord and His church by making our conflicts public. Mark Atterbury in the Ten Dumbest Things Christians Do, says, If there's one thing I've learned, is that seekers are everywhere. Sometimes they give off signals and make themselves known, but most of the time they don't. Either way, they're always around at the beauty shop, the Little League game, the PTA meeting, or the car dealership. And they're always watching and listening. I shudder to think how many souls have been driven away from the Lord by thoughtless words spoken by quarrelsome Christians. Ultimately, when this kind of thing happens, God is dishonored. Consequences of disagreements, if not properly handled. But, disagreements are resolvable. Paul gives no indication that he thinks one is right, speaking of Euodia and Syntyche, one is right and the other is wrong, but rather he pleads for them to be of the same mind. So he doesn't take sides. Or he says to agree with each other in the Lord. It would seem that Paul is saying here, for the sake of the Lord, they should end this disagreement. Charles Swindoll observes this, when disharmony arises between two people or two groups, there is some measure of fault on both sides. Both parties must be encouraged to see each other's fault, each other's failure, and meet on common ground with mutual willingness to listen and to change. So how do we do this? Well, first of all, we approach with humility. When it comes to disagreements, it's very easy for our pride to get in the way of resolution. A declaration of commitment was made by a young African pastor from Zimbabwe before he was martyred. And these papers were found after his death. And I I want to share a portion of, of, of that statement with you today. He said, I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, or first, or tops, or recognized, or praised, or rewarded. I live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we live that way, there might not ever be a disagreement in the church, even though we are human. And look, at, look back at what Paul has written in the letter to the Philippians already. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. <clears throat> He's speaking of, um, well, to the body there. 
And he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he goes on to say, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he talks in the passage following that about how Jesus sacrificially humbled himself. Humility. Approach with humility. And then, display gentleness. How we approach one another when there has been conflict, offense, offense, or differences of opinion can go a long way in determining the outcome of these encounters. How we approach one another. If we come with claws out and teeth bared, more than likely the person we are dealing with will respond in kind, in the same way. Or at the very least, they'll be defensive. We'd approach these situations gently, in softness of manner or disposition. Philippians 4.5, let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 25.15, Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. Gentle, conciliating words overcome opposition and disarm the most determined enemy. And then practice patience. Proverbs 15, 18. A lot of good advice in Proverbs. Proverbs 15, 18. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict. But the one who is patient calms the quarrel. Ephesians 4.2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And the Greek word translated patient here in Ephesians means a long holding of the mind before it gives room to action or passion. In other words, think about it for a while. Don't let your mouth speak before your mind has time to say, don't do that. There are times when we could diffuse a quarrel by being patient and letting the emotion of the moment drain out before we confront that situation. And again, a caution here. Because of different personalities. You know, being patient is not easy to do if you're the type of personality that wants to confront these situations head on and get this situation straightened out. On the other hand, you cannot use patience as an excuse to avoid a situation and refuse to deal with it. Kind of the different ends of the spectrum there. And then disagreements can be resolved if we ask for and extend forgiveness. Mark 11:25 And when you stand praying if you hold anything against anyone forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins We cannot be truly reconciled to one another unless there is forgiveness We should always be willing to seek it and we should always be willing to extend it I don't know how many times I've dealt with people who say, oh, I could never forgive them for that. The issue with that is 
Mark 11.25, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. There's a, there's a connection there. We should always be willing to seek and extend forgiveness. Frankly, this should happen most readily in the body of Christ. And all the people said. <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily because of our expectations of one another. We struggle to forgive because someone who is a Christian shouldn't do what they did to me or say what they said about me. They should know better. Well, probably so. Or we may struggle to forgive because we deny the fact that we were hurt by another believer's words or actions. After all, a Christian shouldn't let something like that bother them. And sometimes we need help in resolving conflicts. Paul calls someone here, he says, um, and yet, yes, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Paul is bringing a third party into the situation. Sometimes we need help in resolving these conflicts. Now, There is, of course, the underlying assumption that both of these women want to work things out. Hopefully they do. And Paul says here, help these women. He's not too proud to call on help. He said, and he sought out help of Syzygus. You're saying, well, I don't see that name in there. But if you go down um, to, hopefully you have a study Bible or one that, by Yoke Fellow, I have a, a, a thing that directs me to a footnote that says, Loyal, loyal Yoke Fellow or Loyal Syzygus. Well, who's that? Well, the Greek word for Yoke Fellow here can be taken either as a proper name, Syzygus, or as a descriptive noun meaning true companion. So we don't know if Paul was actually talking about an individual here, Syzygus, who he thought could be a mediator in this conflict. Whatever's the case, this person is called upon to be a mediator in this conflict to help restore unity in the fellowship of the body at Philippi that, well, this issue between these two women. He's reminded not to lose sight of who these women are. They are fellow laborers in the battle. Don't forget that. You know, the clearest example of third-party mediators given in Matthew 18, verses 15 and 16, it says, If a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him. Work it out between the two of you. If he listens, you've made a friend. If he won't listen, take one or two others along so that the presence of witnesses will help help. Keep things honest and try again. So bring in a third party. By the way, don't go out and find your best friend who's going to take your side. We're looking for somebody who's neutral as they can be in this conflict. You know, the truth is, most of us don't want to get involved in a situation like that, right? I mean, we'll do almost anything to keep from stepping into the middle of a personal disagreement. Our fear is that the result will be 
that both parties will be angry at us. You've, you've watched these, you know, uh, cop shows and, and the reality shows and the police are called out to break up a, a domestic disturbance and when the police try to break up the fight, both of the parties turn on the police officer. Well, that's what we're afraid will happen to us. Yet as Christians, we may, we may be called upon to act as a mediator, to assist in reconciliation. And when we do, the objective is threefold. First, the ultimate goal is restoration. And the overall attitude is grace. And the common ground is Christ. Those are the three essentials. And part of Christian service is a willingness to assist in negotiation, conflict, resolution, and peacemaking. And we're all supposed to be peacemakers anyway, right? Many of you remember the, remember the name Cliff Barrows. He was the longtime music and program director for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Cliff said this one time, there are 12 words that hold a family together. In fact, we could say these 12 words will hold a marriage together, a family together, a church together, and most relationships together. And these are those 12 words. I was wrong. I am sorry. Please forgive me. I love you. (laughs) Do you remember? I don't know why I thought of this. Happy days? Remember happy days? Fonzie? He could never say, I'm sorry. He'd go, I'm sorry. That can't be us. These 12 words, I was wrong, I am sorry, please forgive me, I love you. May God help us to put these words into practice and mean them when we need to do that. They will go a long way to improve life and keep the peace in the church, the body of Christ, when we disagree with one another. Amen? We're going to share together in communion now. Um, Does everyone have... One of these, and if not, raise your hand and we'll make sure you do. Okay, we've got a few, Paul. And I would go ahead and begin opening them now because they can be kind of stubborn. In fact, yeah. Man. I think they use Gorilla Glue on these things. (laughs) Be careful that you don't dye what you're wearing purple today. All right. Okay. Just uh, a word this morning. You need not be a member of our church to partake of communion. And please hold the elements and we will partake together. Um, The title of this little thought is Unity. In John 17, we find these words in the prayer that Jesus prayed for all believers. 
My prayer is not for them alone, speaking of his disciples, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, I in them and you in me, so that, we, so that we may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus prayed that we would be one. That there would be unity in the body of Christ, his church. So as we come to the Lord's table today, we need to remember that we are all on equal footing at the, at the cross. We are cleansed by the same blood. We are saved by the same Jesus. We died of sin and selfishness on the same cross. The Apostle Paul wrote, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Folks, there is oneness, there is unity in the cross of Jesus Christ. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together. Oh, bind us together with love. There is only one God. There is only one King. There is only one body. That is why we sing, bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together. Oh, bind us together with love. When the hour had come, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread. Then he took the cup gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's partake of the cup. Lord Jesus, what we have just done in remembrance of your sacrifice for us, is really a symbol of the unities that should exist in the body of Christ. We are all saved by the same blood. The blood that you shed on the cross for us. And, I, and we know that you desire oneness in the church, in relationships with one another. Oh, we know stuff will arise. <laughs> We're human. We don't always see things the same way. Oh, but God, Lord God, may we be so full of your spirit. May we love each other so much. May the unity of the body be so important to us that we're willing to work those things out. To understand that they're resolvable. We're willing to be humble. We're willing to be gentle. We're willing to be patient. We're willing to extend or receive forgiveness. To maintain that oneness that's so essential. Not only to us and the fellowship we enjoy, but in our witness to a watching world. And Father, may we be keen, aware, may our antennas be up to any time the enemy of our souls tries to bring division 
into this body, the body of Christ. That there would be no factions. That there would be no splits. There would be no... No one would unfriend the other. But Lord God, we would be examples of what it means to love one another. To deal in a Christ-like scriptural way with the disagreements we have. So that the life of the body of Christ, your church, would bring to you, Lord Jesus, glory and honor and praise. And we would be wonderful representatives of Jesus in our world, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.